This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Matt Davis. Hey all, this is Matt Davis. Hope you're doing well today. In this episode, I sat down to chat with Dr. Erin Schumann. She has had a remarkable scientific career, including a stint as a Howard Hughes medical investigator. That means she's well respected by the scientific community. Currently, she's the managing director of the Max Planck Institute for Brain Research in Frankfurt, Germany. In her experimental work, she has sought to characterize the components that make up a neuron. Proteins are one such component that are very important and they facilitate many of the internal neuronal processes. One particularly important concentration of proteins is the site at which neurons are connected. This is called a synapse. Release of neurotransmitter from one cell into the synapse results in neurotransmitter binding to receptors in the next cell. This is one of the methods a cell can transmit an excitatory or inhibitory signal to another cell. The change in strength or number of these synapses is widely understood to be important for learning and memory. Particularly, changes in the number and the type of proteins underlie some forms of this so-called synaptic plasticity. Dr. Schumann is using cutting-edge techniques to identify and quantify the types of proteins involved in synaptic processes. She estimates that on average, each neuron must orchestrate the creation, trafficking, and maintenance of 250 million proteins. It's certainly a daunting task. However, this work could answer fundamental questions about how neurons respond to the rapidly changing external world while storing and updating memories. In addition to the scientific chatter, towards the end Dr. Schumann tells us how to make one of her favorite dishes. So perk up those hair cells and let's take a listen. What's the general domain that you work in? Uh, So we work on how the connections between brain cells are functionalized, so how they operate, and how they change with experience. So when animals or synapses receive some kind of external input, how they respond to that input. And in particular, we focus on all of the proteins that inhabit these connections. That's what are the building blocks of synapses, and that's the way we view it. We're really fascinated by how the proteins are supplied to synapses, especially when you think about the architecture of a neuron and the fact that it's it's unique. Um, There are no other cells in the body that look like neurons. So most cells and tissues are round, but neurons have that beautiful round cell body and then these massive tangle of processes and proteins have to get there. And so that's Basically, what drives our work is trying to understand how you get protein to these very remote sites in in neurons. For our listeners that haven't taken bio in a while, like the very basic mechanisms of uh, protein translation and how it works. So the sort of the central dogma of molecular biology is that information about proteins is encoded in DNA, in genes, and DNA is then transcribed to RNA, in particular messenger RNA that makes a copy of the DNA, 
And then the messenger RNA gets transformed by cellular machines called ribosomes. It gets altered from a nucleotide code that's in the mRNA to an amino acid code. So proteins are strings of amino acids, and when the mRNA is introduced to a ribosome, three nucleotides at a time are read out as the code for an amino acid, and then chains of amino acids make up proteins. And in most cells in the body, DNA is converted to mRNA in the nucleus, and then mRNA is exported outside of the cell nucleus, and very close to the nucleus in the cytoplasm is where the mRNA is made into protein. But in neurons, we and many other labs have discovered that the mRNA can be made into protein hundreds of microns away in the processes close to where the synapses are. What are some of those kind of landmark discoveries on protein translation in neurons and throughout uh, sort of historically? Mm -hmm. So in the 60s, there was a neuroanatomist at Johns Hopkins University, John Bodian, who was studying the nerve muscle synapse in cats and doing um, electron microscopy, so looking at the very fine-grained structure of nerves that were contacting muscles. And there he noted in the nerve cells that there was the signature of these ribosomes, so these cellular machines that make protein. In particular, they form these clusters. So on, if you picture the mRNA like a string, the ribosomes are like these little beads on the string. So several ribosomes can be making a protein from the same messenger RNA at the same time. And Bodian saw that. And then some 20 years later in the central nervous system, uh, Ozzie Stewart and Chip Levy were also doing electron microscopy now in, in the hippocampus, a brain structure that we know is important for learning and memory. And there they saw the same thing, except now they saw within the specialization of the synapse, these polyribosomes. And they speculated that these ribosomes, which were so close to the synapse, could be making protein that would influence the synapse or being influenced by the synapse itself. So the synapse could be telling the ribosomes to change the proteins they are making or make more or less of a protein. And so the field sort of, most in most people's mind, that 1980 discovery was the important discovery for basically making the suggestion that protein synthesis could happen in dendrites. And then there were some biochemical experiments where people ground up brains and looked to see using radioactive amino acids that could be incorporated into protein, whether these ground-up brains were competent um, to make protein. And those, in those biochemistry experiments, they could, by spinning and doing different purifications, they could get um, bits of brain that were enriched for synapses. And they showed that, yeah, you could have these synaptic fractions that could make protein. Um, and then... In 1996, my graduate student um, made the first discovery of a kind of plasticity that appears to make use of this local, we call this local protein synthesis, meaning you know very close to the site of action. So she discovered in brain slices doing electrophysiology recording, so recording the synaptic events directly, a kind of plasticity, which means a change in synaptic strength um, that required protein synthesis that was not coming from the cell body. So she proved that by recording from the synapses that were actually isolated 
um, cut away from the cell body, and she still saw this requirement for protein synthesis. So that was um, the first paper that actually really showed directly a role for this local protein synthesis. And then over the years, there have been many uh, papers supporting this idea, looking at synaptic plasticity in different brain areas and different animals and different models. And there have been many demonstrations now of this local protein synthesis being important. You hit one area already in terms of uh, the sort of findings that you've made from your research. Could you walk us through a little bit of your sort of journey and your arc in terms of the topics that you've studied and, and how how you moved on? Sure. And, uh, so through. starting from the beginning, like uh, undergraduate? Or, sure, yeah. yeah. Okay. So um, my, my undergraduate degree is in psychology. So, and I spent a lot of time then as an undergrad at University of Southern California studying what was called physiological psychology, which is basically neuroscience. But mm. I took a lot of um, behavior and human psychology classes as well and was really interested in learning and memory and the sort of genetic basis of information encoding. And for my honors thesis, I did a, a twin study um, where I gave cognitive tests to twins that I, me and actually my boyfriend at the time, um, had to get the subjects ourselves. So we sent massive amounts of letters to... Before the internet. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I was just thinking about this the other day because we printed out letters, we had self-addressed stamped envelopes, and we dropped them off at the schools who told us how many pairs of twins they had, but wouldn't let us have access to the twins. So they would send these notes home with these twins, and then the parents, if they were interested in participating in the study, would write us. So we did that and administered all these kinds of cognitive tests and did the standard kind of genes versus environment kind of analysis for cognitive abilities. And then... I mean, I, I, that was a kind of a funny experience because the twins, um, you guys aren't twins, are you? No, no twin <laughs> they that were, I know of. They were really bizarre. I mean, it was, we, we studied the twins in Irvine, California, which is this. Oh, I'm from Orange County. Okay. Yeah, okay. So. so that's where I'm from too. So oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So do you know Irvine then? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it's, you know, this kind of stereo isomers of, yeah. right? Like one school, one Vons Very homogenous. Yes, yeah. exactly. And so I still remember going into these houses, and they were all earth tones mm-hmm. with macrame kind of wall yeah. hangings, and then the two little twins that were dressed freakishly oh alike. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was very funny. And you know, we were trying to navigate to find where we were in Irvine, and you had no visual landmarks because nope. everything looks exactly the yeah. same. Yeah, so. And the twins were a little bit hyper, or I don't know, they just were a little uncontrollable. So I thought, okay, need to switch to an animal model. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Non-human animal model. And so that's what I did for my graduate work. I actually went to much the other end of the spectrum and studied learning in a mollusk at Princeton studied Pavlovian learning, so the kind of ring-the-bell salivation mm-hmm. learning, but in um, a mollusk called Hermesenda crassicornis. And there got very interested in the cellular substrates of the change in behavior. So the animals were learning something, and I was trying to figure out what was changing in the brain with learning. And I did electrophysiology, again, 
um, putting electrodes in and describing changes in ion currents that were associated with learning and how they were altered, which was really fun. It was great. And then for my postdoctoral work, I decided that I wanted to move to um, learn the brain slice as a model system. And I went to Stanford and studied synaptic transmission in the hippocampus, which I mentioned previously. Mm -hmm. Um, By slicing that brain structure up, you have intact neural circuitry that you can study in vitro. So you can slice the brain and then study it for 10 hours or so with electrodes. And I spent a lot of time studying synaptic plasticity at certain synapses there and discovered that a gas that's generated in the brain, nitric oxide, Mm -hmm. um, could serve as a kind of messenger. So a point source of this gas generated at a synapse could influence Mm -hmm. many synapses in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. That was an exciting time um, with the discovery of nitric oxide as a biological messenger that's also now known for as being the active component in Viagra. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting headlines. Yeah, yeah. brain testes connection again. <laughs> then, pretty quickly after that, I was recruited to Caltech to start my job um, because I had some nice papers as a postdoc. And, yeah, started there and began actually the experiments that I just described. So yeah. these were some of the very first experiments that we did, and mm-hmm. it's all, yeah. Great, yeah, that's awesome. I was struck earlier, you sort of gave this model of a neuron and all the proteins that are involved in this, and you did a calculation. Could you just give us that off the top of your head? Sure, sure, I think sure, it's really sure. powerful. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, so the idea is just how much protein does a single neuron have to manage? Um, And if you say that there are, let's say, 10 to the 4 synapses, so let's focus in on what's at a single synapse. So we know there are around 500 different proteins at a synapse and about 50 copies of each protein. So if we multiply 500 times 5 times 10 to the 4, that gives us 250 million proteins Mm -hmm. in just the synaptic compartment and that's just including the receiving aspect of what a neuron has the dendrite but there's also another whole end of the neuron that is for sending information that's the axon which is about the same volume as the dendrite so you would add another 250 million proteins to that to get to something like 500 million proteins in just a single cell and in neurons, I mean, the, the location of the protein matters. So not only do you need to make sure you have the right copy number of the protein, but it has to be in the right place. And proteins have a lifetime. So they turn over. So they're made, synthesized by the ribosomes. And then with some, each protein species has a sort of characteristic or average half-life where it's then degraded. Mm-hmm within cells, so needs to be replaced, especially if you consider that the synapses in neurons are where information is stored. You need to basically make sure that those unstable proteins are being replaced. And most people think that the average half-life of proteins in neurons is around 24 hours. So if you had 500 million proteins, that would mean every 24 hours you need to replace half of those. So that's 
That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what is that sort of, how, where do, what do you take from that, all that sort of complexity? Well, to me, it, it means that we really need to get a handle on the numbers. Like that's just, that's off for mm. sure by an order of magnitude at any one of those little steps. But the information that we have access to today, that is that we can get by the techniques we have, allows us to have sort of quantitative estimates. And so you can have an upper and lower bound for what makes sense. So if, for example, we knew which mRNAs are present in the dendrites at what concentration, and we knew how many protein copies were present in the dendrites, we could say how many proteins are made from a single mRNA, right? So how many ribosomes? That would be an important piece of information. What happens when the nervous system alters something? Does a single message, messenger RNA, now give rise to more protein? Is that one mechanism for generating more protein? Is our proteins turned over more rapidly with plasticity? So all of these things, these, these properties are things that can be modulated and I think that we need to get the numbers on these things. So we need to understand and can understand now how many mRNAs give rise to how many proteins that turn over with what half-life in what physical space. Yeah, basically. And, um, you've made some headway on sort of estimating the number of mRNAs in like dendrites and axons specifically. Mm-hmm. Sure. So what we did was... I mean, there are different techniques you can use to identify a population of mRNAs. And one, one technique that's used a, a lot was or is microarrays. And on microarrays, you basically have to have an idea of what you're looking for. And you can spot on this little glass slide a probe that will detect everything you're looking for. And so when you do that, you, you can find what you're looking for. But sometimes you might want to find what you're not looking for. You want to discover things that you didn't know about. And to do that, and also to be more sensitive, that is to be able to find things that are at very low copy numbers, a lot of people now are using what's called deep sequencing. And in deep sequencing, you directly sequence the DNA or the RNA that's present in the tissue uh, using sophisticated technologies. And so you get these stretches of sequenced nucleotides that you can then match up using what's called bioinformatics to a database. So the databases that have been published that tell us all of the genes for many different species, you can take your nucleotide stretch and see which gene it matches. And then you can say, okay, that mRNA must be present in the starting material that I started with. And so we used this deep sequencing together with a tech with a microdissection just by hand cutting out the the regions that we thought were enriched in dendrites and axons and there we were able to identify um, a huge number of mRNAs that were present in the processes um, 2500 where previous estimates had been around 100 mm-hmm. so this really changes the landscape for what could potentially be made locally the other thing that really struck me was the nanostring data. Mm-hmm. Um, I, when I first saw that, I was like, that, that I, I thought Hubble telescope, you know, mm-hmm. image or something it was just beautiful. Um, could you tell us about that Galaxy. technique? And, yeah, yeah, so that's a really nice technique where you can use a fluorescent barcode, which is something I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of for in situ labeling. 
And you basically design, if you want to detect an mRNA, you design a, a probe that will bind to that mRNA. But attached to the probe that binds to the mRNA is a sequence of fluorescent molecules. So for gene 1, you could have red, green, yellow, green. And for gene 2, red, red, green, yellow. And so you can build up many such codes for many mRNAs that you want to detect. And then when those probes bind, you can image them in high resolution and you basically see, you know, a lawn of beautiful little fluorescent mm -hmm. codes like you saw in my talk that can be read out. And you can get a very nice quantitative view of how many of these mRNA molecules were present in the material you started with, mm -hmm. which allows us to start to get some of the numbers that I was telling you we wanted to get access to. Yeah, and I mean, it's not just enough to identify what's there, but um, sort of, I guess, specifically where it is, sort of localize mm -hmm. it, and um, what sort of techniques have you used to get at those questions. Right, so to localize things, then you have to start with your brain tissue intact. You can't grind it up. But we can use a similar technique, which relies on the hybridization of a sequence that's complementary. That means it matches the nucleotides. Um, and you can have that sequence, that probe, with a single bright fluorophore or several bright fluorophores on it. And by treating the tissue in just the right way, you can actually see these little bright spots lighting up. So you can tell, as you say, not only that something's there, but where it is. And so then we can also count, you know, how many of these molecules are present at what distance from the cell body and measure things hundreds of microns from the cell body and see the little cell biological world that's sort of a world unto itself way out yeah out there in the the dendrites yeah the neuron sort of looks like a christmas tree it's yeah. got all this little string of lights yes. around the dendrites and the yeah. processes and yeah, it's really beautiful um and then and then the next step of course is when mm -hmm. so you've made some strides in uh, identifying or getting at that question. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, so that's um, a new way of, meta we say, metabolically labeling, which means labeling a protein while it's being synthesized. And as I mentioned, proteins are made of amino acids. And what we've done together with my colleague at Caltech, Dave Terrell, is to use amino acids that look like regular amino acids, but they have a little chemical handle on them. And so the cell, we fool the cell into using our amino acid during protein synthesis. And then we can take advantage of this chemical handle to then either visualize that protein um, in the cell or pull the protein out and detect it using mass spectrometry, which is a technique where you can actually um, look at the mass and charge of, of proteins that are broken up into peptides and identify by back calculating what the proteins actually are. Do you see sort of in the next five to 10 years some emerging technologies that you're gonna be able to apply uh, to your research or? Yeah, I mean, there's some really exciting things going on using these fluorescent barcodes, for example, in situ. So using something like nanostring, but in situ where you could have the simultaneous detection of many different messenger RNAs. Right now we're limited by the number of laser lines we have, so we can maybe do four at most. But with this 
in situ um, barcode technique, we could do, you know, a hundred if we wanted. And then you could use even better microscopy. So we use two photon or confocal microscopy, but there's even more advanced imaging techniques that give you better resolution. So we could potentially see, you know, the physical relationship or the locations of 100 mRNAs in the cell at the same time. I think that would be really, really neat. Then on the sequencing front, we're in a position now, um, and we have the data, and we're just in the process of analyzing to really discover every kind of RNA species that is present in the dendrite. So the messenger RNA that I referred to, we now believe is only about 5% of the total RNA that's present in a cell. So there's also RNA that's present in ribosomes that's important for translation, but there are lots of non-coding RNAs that regulate lots of cellular processes. And we've detected all of these species of non-coding RNAs and dendrites, and so we're trying to figure out what they're doing and in the process of analyzing those data now as well. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's a lot of information, but I think it's it's better to know than not to know. You know, it's better to know that things are complex than to fool yourself into thinking yeah. that they're simple. And that's a general rule that you've yeah, sort of motivated so. you throughout your yeah, career. Yeah, I think so. I mean, in the beginning, I studied things much more at what would people would say like the single molecule level, so the contribution of a single molecule to a process. But um, in the last, I would say, 15 years or so, I've really be, got less and less excited about that and became more interested in getting a sort of big picture view of how things work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what do you enjoy the most about being a scientist? I mean, I would have said if I were still doing experiments, I, I really love doing experiments. Yeah. I mean, that is like a super high for me. Mm -hmm. uh, but since I don't get to do that anymore, my, my hedonism scale is sort of compressed at the low end. Yeah. But so for me... The really fun things are, you know, discovering new things and the intensity when you have a new discovery of working with a small group of people and, you know, having almost daily feedback on, um, you know, yeah. throwing ideas around, then people go into the lab or go look up stuff and then we come back the next day and we're, you know, I love that kind of intensity. That's, mm -hmm. for me, great and super exciting and fun for everybody and also you know using your imagination like one thing that I really like about what we're doing now is that it's really totally unknown and as a neuroscientist I, I like doing things I mean many times in neuroscience we kind of especially if you do cellular neurobiology you sort of copy um, things from cell biologists and they're still interesting to neuroscientists but I think the stuff that we're interested in now, no one knows how that works in any cell. So I think it's interesting to study it in, you know, the coolest cell in the body, but also to do it maybe before people do it for other cells. Were your parents academics or, or were they? So my mom was a school teacher. I think that's a popular occupation for um, people that do what I do if they're not from academics. Mm -hmm. And my dad was like a finance person so yeah. no i mean i think my interest in science was not 
sort of homegrown at all. It was sort of a random walk and then sort of, yeah, spending more time and becoming interested in, I mean, I love doing experiments. That was really what pulled me and kept me going um, in science. Yeah. Were you able to maintain any hobbies or outside interests uh, um, outside of your science Mm. and neuroscience throughout the years? Um, Well, through the time I was a postdoc, not so much. Um, And then I guess when I, after I got tenure, (laughs) I... Um, spent a lot more time. I, I like, I mean, I think it relates to liking to do experiments because I love cooking and I love gardening. Yeah. And those are like creative things and also something I think really raw and fundamental about humanity, like using your hands yeah. to do something. So I think those three things are kind of related. And since I don't get to do experiments as much, I now, yeah, like to cook and garden. What's your favorite dish to cook? Oh, or what are some of say, your top choice? My top choice, um, well, being winter and being in Germany, a good one is um, like a roasted root vegetables. So like turnips and beets, mm-hmm. and carrots and parsnips with some garlic and maybe some rosemary. This is like my easy one. Mm-hmm. This is my weeknight, yeah. maybe entertaining a colleague, making it look easy, but still being really delicious. So, yeah, roasted vegetables, and then I would put, like, maybe some duck breasts on the top. Mm. And so then at the end of the roast, so, like, roast them at a high temperature for about 40 minutes or so, and then in the last 15 minutes put the duck breast on, lots of salt and pepper, and then, like, the duck fat goes onto the vegetables. Very good. Yeah. Um, then I would do a really good salad I make with radicchio. It's like all radicchio, fresh, mm-hmm. with um, a really good intense vinaigrette that has Dijon mustard and crushed garlic, and then a huge amount of grated Parmesan cheese. So if you like bitter stuff, it's a great salad. Yeah. And it actually goes really good with the root vegetables because it has that kind of bitter note going through the whole thing. Mm-hmm. For dessert, I make a really good caramel, fresh caramel, like made by hand, mm-hmm. walnut chocolate tart. Okay. That sounds that like would an be... amazing culinary experience. <laughs> <laughs> that I, would be a good yeah. one. <laughs> I can guarantee you that our other uh, interviewer, Anthony, is going to make that at some point. He's yeah. really into cooking <laughs> He just made, he just started gardening and built some raised beds and stuff. Oh, so, perfect! Yeah, yeah, he's definitely going to do that at some point. Is there anything sort of else that you have learned over the years, or would like people to know, or some general thing you know that you feel it's important? Yeah, I mean, I guess the other thing that I really spend a lot of time on and care deeply about is the uh, the role of women in science and girls in science and. Um, try to spend a lot of time um, paving or making it easier for women and girls to do science or to have science as an option. And in Germany, where I live now, the, um, it's kind of surprising, but the um, culture is such that a lot of women who even have a degree don't 
go back to work. So the statistics are, you know, if you've had two kids, you're, you have an 86% chance of never going back to work. And there's some sort of culture that, you know, one should take care of one's own children and there's a stigma associated with daycare. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the campus, we are building um, a childcare facility for both the Max Planck Institute where I work and also for the university and we've pushed to have it so that people can take their kids there at three months. This is another way that society kind of prevents women from going back to work in Germany because you can't even take your kid to daycare until they're like 18 months. So if oh, you're yeah. in a competitive field, there's no way. You you know, by 18 months, you're kind of, yeah, yeah no chance for reentry. So we've worked hard on that, and we're, we've spent a lot of time on the design of the facility to make it really state-of-the-art and amazing so that new moms might actually feel guilty for not taking their kids there because, you (laughs) know, with so many cool sensory experiences and everything, they would feel like that's not something you can create de novo at home, right? Yeah, designed by neuroscientists. Yeah, yeah. So that's something important for us. So we're working on that. Great. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us. No problem. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for listening to this episode of Brain Matters. We'd like to thank today's guests for joining us and you for listening. For more information about the science you heard today, please visit us at brainpodcast.com. See you next time on Brain Matters.